Luke 23, and verse 44. Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we're thankful that we are able to read such words, that we are able to receive such truth that the world itself could not have ignored, the significance of which could not possibly be eclipsed. And Heavenly Father, how we pray that the meaning of these things would not escape us now. The Lord, all the more that you would brighten the sun of righteousness to us. That through your word and spirit, all the full significance and meaning of the death of Christ would be made known to us for our salvation. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, at long last, we come now to this moment in which the whole gospel has been Waiting has been directing our attention, foreshadowing, prophesying many times, almost from the beginning. It's very clear that this is the work, this is the mission that the Lord has sent Jesus Christ to do. He was, in the words of John the Baptist, the Lamb of God. Indeed, the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. In principle, this was his work, but in time he came to do this. And he had turned long ago, many, many chapters, and long months, a year ago actually for us, had turned his face, had set his face steadfastly toward Jerusalem, where he was to lay down his life in accordance with the will of the Father, in accordance with his own desire to save his people. Now, friends, this is a stupendous event, the death of Christ. No human death is something ever to pass without notice. We've spoken of that. We are not animals. We are made in the image of the living God. And no human death passes without notice. But the death of Christ, now the significance of that event could not ever be overestimated. And God makes sure that it could not be ignored. And so that it is accompanied by Notable signs, ominous signs in the natural world. Only one that is particularly mentioned here, but there are others that are mentioned in the other Gospels. And then one in the religious world. The great veil in the temple, the central aspect of, of all religion at the time, in the whole earth, the temple in Jerusalem. And there, this veil separating the holy from the holy of holies was torn in two. Because not only is God communicating to us the need to pay attention, He's not just ringing a bell to get our attention, but He is giving us significance. He is communicating to us things that need to be understood, things that are happening are of infinite importance, and the nature of the signs that are, are going on tell us about what is happening, the, that the Son of God is dying. 
and he is dying for a reason, paying for the sins of his people and opening the way of salvation, because truly that is what the meaning of that veil being torn asunder. The way of salvation is open. There is judgment being poured out on Christ, and the, the sun is darkened because of it. The darkness of judgment that one day will be reserved and is reserved has been indeed the, the rightful place of every last man and woman, boy and girl who has ever lived in this world. The place you rightly deserve is a place of eternal darkness. And this darkness is seen at that time. And at the same time, at the end of this, the veil being torn The way into the Holy of Holies, the way into the mercy seat, the way into the presence of God was opened through the blood of Christ. And then we have this word from the cross. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Friends, these things are beyond our comprehension, our fullest comprehension, but they must enter into our minds. We must begin to understand them. Because this truly, this death is our life. Well, the title is The Meaning of the Death of Christ. And there are these three points. Darkness and judgment. The veil torn. And the atonement completed. Darkness and judgment, the veil torn. And the atonement completed. So first, the dark, darkness and judgment. We read in verse 44, Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. It was, friends, over the whole earth. Now, I suppose that it is possible that this is intended just as a local area. But why then would there be from this very precise man, Luke the physician, given to Details. He was a very detail-oriented man, which God used in his inerrant and inspired word, not one word of which is wasted or astray or misleading at all. Every bit of it contains truth. Why would he say then over the whole earth? It seems to me rather more likely that these words are precisely like those in Genesis chapter 8. The same words reporting the Genesis flood. But the Genesis 8, 9. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot, and she returned into the ark to him, for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. The whole earth. Now, interestingly, there are many who today deny that the flood was worldwide. Why? Because they don't really believe God's word, and they want to reassure man that nothing too terrible happened there. It's just a local flood, kind of like what we have Uh, Every year here in the UK, certain low-lying areas, there's a flood. There's nothing worse than that. Don't worry about it. Friends, it was nothing like that. It was the destruction of the entire world. The highest mountain was utterly covered with water. They covered the whole earth. And we find the same wording here with regard to the darkness. It covered the whole world. And notice the cause of it. Some think that the darkness in verse 44 is something independent. But notice in verse 45, then the sun was darkened. Now that word then may be the word that we have. It's probably not in this case the very best of translations. You get the idea there was darkness and then the sun was darkened. 
But actually, I think it's an explanation of why there was darkness. Because the sun, which is the source of all light, was itself darkened. That was the root cause of it. The darkness was experienced. Darkness had covered the whole earth. And the, the root of that was that the sun itself was darkened. Now, how is that? Well, some of you remember the old Christianity Explored videos, the one before the, pre, the current series, where Rico Tice gets out a globe and gets out some, some desk light and demonstrates what an ordinary eclipse looks like, and he says that's impossible at this time. Why? Because it's Passover, Easter time. That is nowhere near uh, where the alignment would be necessary for there to be a solar eclipse. The moon was just simply not anywhere near Precisely on the other side of the earth, actually. And so we know it was not an eclipse. And funny enough, there have been attempts throughout, as I mentioned, attempts to diminish the the flood into something small and local and insignificant. So there's been attempts even to diminish this into something more understandable. The, The more critical and liberal text actually changes the word to eclipse rather than darkened. Friends, this is a stark miracle. This is, we're not looking for any kind of human explanation, a natural explanation. This didn't randomly happen. How strange is that? Somehow that the, the sun happened to have a normal eclipse at this time. That's precisely the opposite of all this. There is an agent causing this darkening. It was a passive word. The sun was darkened clearly acted upon by some external agent and the the sun itself being merely a passive recipient as if a hand covering it. And who's that external agent? God himself. Now we know we experience the sun as the most powerful and most significant influence in our world, the source of almost all energy. Any energy that we find is, is derivative in some way, almost all of it. And it's the giver of all life, biologically. If there's anything, if there's any uh, uh, crops, if there's any fruit, if there's any plankton, if there's any seaweed, whatever it might be, it ultimately derives its, its light and therefore its life from the sun. But beloved, the sun's not ultimate. It wasn't even always there. The first three days of creation, there was no sun. People ask, how could it be? The same way it's going to be when this world comes to an end, and there will be no sun. That's what it says in Revelation 22.5. There'll be no night there. They need no light nor lamp. No light of the sun. For the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. There's a source of light apart from a physical sun. And this light, though, it's not ultimate. The sun is not ultimate. And it would not have been right for it to carry on shining as normal when Christ himself, the, the, the thing that is the antitype, the thing of which the sun is merely a picture, a type of, is being extinguished. Because that is exactly what has happened. The light of the world, Christ himself is being extinguished as he's lying there dying. And what is God saying in all this blackness of darkness? Friends, he's saying it's about judgment. It's judgment. His judgment has come. 
Isaiah 13:9 says, "Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with both fierce and wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and He will destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light; the sun will be darkened in its going forth, and the moon will not cause its light to shine. I will, and here's the thing in verse 11: I will punish the world for its evil, and the wicked for their iniquity." That's what it's about. This darkness is about God's judgment and wrath having come. Is the cross about wrath? Is, it, is the cross about judgment? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's about both of those things. There is no salvation apart from judgment. And that is most clearly the case in the cross. Now friends, light, and particularly the light of the sun again, is a sign of God's goodness and blessing. God says that he demonstrates his love and his kindness to all the people in this world by making the sun to shine even on the wicked. They don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. But nonetheless, God in his goodness gives this light and this life and this joy and this blessedness by making his sun to shine all throughout the world. Darkness, on the other hand, is a picture of his wrath and his judgment. Ultimately in hell. It's a place of darkness. Again, people say, how could there be both flames and darkness? Friends, God is God. And these things are utterly trivial for him. And I can assure you there will be both flames and darkness in hell. Second Peter 2.4 said it, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment... And in verse 17, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. One of the great and terrible aspects of hell. Hell is multidimensional. There are many elements to this suffering of hell. But surely one of them, one of the most terrible, is this utter darkness. No light at all. No expectation of light. You know, in this world, when it is dark at night, you at least are looking forward to when it will be light again. There will be no such expectation in hell. There will be no hope whatsoever. Only the blackness of darkness forever and ever. And friends, one day that darkness will come upon the whole earth. It will be the final darkness of judgment come upon all the unrepentant sinners in this world. And God was showing Judgment had come and judgment was coming. It was a warning to them, yes, that one day this was coming to them all. But it was an indication that actually judgment had come upon one particular man. And that man was the Lord Jesus Christ. All that would come, that should have come, upon his people for their sins, the just payment And recompense for their sin. It came upon the Lord Jesus Christ. All of it. The forsakenness. The the wrath. The pain. The suffering. The death. The darkness. Came upon him. It had to. There's no salvation apart from judgment. The question is whether the judgment and the wrath and the darkness is coming upon you or upon your Savior. It has to come upon one of you. It came upon him. Well, it's about darkness. 
and judgment. It's one aspect of this death of Christ that we see. And secondly, the veil torn. Now again, there's not all that much information given in these three verses, but one aspect is this darkness that has come upon the whole earth, and the other is that the veil of the temple was torn. It says in verse 45, the veil of the temple was torn in two. Not some trivial little cut, but it was torn utterly in two. And once again, it's a passive word. The, the veil certainly did not tear itself, nor was this any freak accident. This was absolutely performed by some external agent. And again, the question is, who? Who could have possibly done it? Who could have darkened the sun? And who could have torn the veil? On the face of it, it might seem just a little bit more plausible, but that this might have been an act of man. Some act of some blasphemous person wanting to go into the temple and maybe he could tear the veil. But friends, that is absolutely not the case. The Lord does not allow us to make that Conclusion at all through two ways. First of all, if you knew anything about the veil, you know that it was not some thin, fail, sort of frail, uh, threadbare cloth that you can see through. It was actually about as thick as a man's hand. And it was designed to endure long centuries. It, in fact, was designed to permit no transmission of light, lest, lest anyone ever glimpse a sight of what was inside. No man could have possibly torn it like that. And the other thing, the main thing, is what is said here in Mark, uh, it said in, uh, in Mark 15.38, that the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Luke doesn't mention that detail, but the Lord expects us to read the other Gospels and understand. He, it was torn in two from top to bottom. If I wanted to, if there was a curtain here, and I was planning on tearing it. I would surely go to the bottom and, and tear that way. And I would get about halfway up before any, any stretch of my arms could possibly continue tearing it. But friends, this is torn from the top. The temple's no small building, by the way. And this is no small veil from top to bottom. No man did this. This was an act of God, just like the darkening of the sun. It was an act of God. And why? What was the significance of it? Well, to understand that, you have to understand what the purpose of the veil in the first place was. Why was there such a veil in God's temple? Exodus twenty six thirty three says that you shall hang the veil from the clasp. You shall bring the ark of the testimony in there to this holy of holies. Behind the veil, the veil shall be a divider for you between the holy place, that's the outer holy place, and the most holy, the holy of holies, the place of the particular presence of the living God. And you shall put the mercy seat upon the ark of the testimony in the most holy. And likewise in Exodus 30 verse 6, you shall put it before the veil that is before the ark of the testimony, before the mercy seat that is over the testimony, where I will meet with you. And you say, this is a problem. That's kind of a problem, isn't it? That you'd have such an impenetrable barrier, this extremely thick curtain to separate and to divide, to keep people out, or even seeing the place of mercy, the place of God's presence, a place where he says, I will meet with you. And yet we're excluded from this place. And that's exactly the point. That is precisely the point of the Old Testament ceremonial law, the temple itself, and certainly of the, the veil, it is a picture of Holiness is necessary. 
You must come to a place of God's mercy. There is a mercy seat in there. You can't get there. The way into that mercy seat, the way into the merciful presence of God is not available to you, sinner. Stay out. That's the message of the temple. That's the message of the veil and the purpose that it was given. Surely there was some way in, right? Well, actually there was. Actually there was. Once a year, not every day, but once a year, not everyone, but the high priest, not all the priests, just the high priest, once a year the high priest did enter in on behalf of the people. And how did he get there? Do you know if he just walked in on his own, off his own bat someday, what would happen to him? Struck dead. That's what would happen to him. The only way on God's appointed day, once a year he could come in, was through blood. He must come into the sacrifice of blood in order for him to gain entrance into that mercy seat. And Hebrews 9, which is our great guide to all of these things, explains to us, Hebrews 9, verse 6, the priest always went into the first part of the temple, meaning the holy, performing the services, but into the second part, the holy of holies, the most holy, the high priest went alone once a year and not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. You see that? And listen to this in verse 8. The Holy Spirit indicating this. What is it? What's the significance of that? What's the importance of it? The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the, holy, the, uh, the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. The, holy, the way in was, was not open. The whole point of it. What then? When we see God himself, as it were, by his own hands, tears that veil in two from top to bottom. He tells of the, the significance of the death of Christ. The way into that holy of holies, the way into the merciful presence of God was, was opened through blood, through the death of the ultimate sacrifice, the one to whom all of those sacrifices pointed, the one to whom all of the work of the high priest was pointing. Through his death, the way into the presence of God was made clear and open. We have access way into this mercy seat. No longer the velvet ropes. You think of the thick velvet ropes. Well, that's about the, the size and density of the curtain we're talking about. And a whole curtain made out of velvet rope in order to keep you and I out. It's been torn in two by God himself. Why? Precisely because of his judgment upon the Son of God. Precisely because of that darkness and precisely because of that suffering and death, it's finished with. And at the moment that it's finished, the way is opened. That's the significance of that. And as a way of confirmation, we come then to our third and final point. And that is that the atonement was completed. We have here the final word of Christ on the cross in verse 46. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, you understand, again, that not 
Not all the physical phenomena were recorded in each and every one of the Gospels. There were, for instance, earthquakes as well. We don't have that recorded in Luke. And not all the words, not all the sayings of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross are recorded in this particular one. So we're supposed to look at the other ones. Luke has the first, Father, forgive them. And he also has, today you'll be with me in paradise. But the others he skips. And just before this final word which we have in Luke, there's the one we have in Matthew 27, 46. And about the ninth hour, because this is where we are, there's darkness from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, three hours. From noon, by the way, just in case you're wondering, what are we talking about? Is it maybe 7.30 or 8 and the, the light's going in? No, no, it's, it's, it's noon is when this darkness began. From the... From that hour until the, the ninth, and then about the ninth hour in Matthew twenty seven forty six, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that helps us to understand something, you see. Because at the height of this atoning work, as God was pouring out his wrath upon Christ, we see the darkness He is enduring the misery and pain of hell reserved for us. We see that there is a sense in which Christ was forsaken. And that loving, familial relationship in which Jesus related to God as as son to father was interrupted. In a way that we cannot fully comprehend. Because we, co- we know that there is no such thing as God without a son. God is triune. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we know that the Son of God was, was com- firmly and completely and permanently united with a human nature. How then could he have been so forsaken? We don't know. And I can tell you that the Lord Jesus Christ experienced the fullness of forsakenness. And when he and his misery and when he in his darkness and when he in his pain cried out he doesn't say my father he says my god my god my god and the thing that he says is not how wonderful you love me but why have you forsaken me as that's the other terrible aspect of hell that we have to consider It's not just the pain and the suffering and the flames, the wrath being poured out, the darkness. It's the utter forsakenness. As we have not a trace of the beneficent, benevolent, blessed presence of the living God among us, but utter forsakenness and rather only his wrathful presence upon us. This is what the Lord Jesus Christ was experiencing. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But friends, by the time we get to verse 46 in Luke, something has changed. Something very dramatically has changed. Now he's no longer saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he says, my, my Father. He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So that relationship has been restored. Whatever it was that was interposing itself between that and whatever it was is bringing the wrath of God instead of this, this blessed fellowship that was ended. Because the work was ended. In the course of those three hours he bore 
the wrath of God that was meant for all of his people. That sin that was upon him as the high priest. He had come, you see, also as a high priest. Not only as the sacrifice, but as the high priest himself. And the high priest always carried symbols of the people, the sinful people. We think of them as wonderful jewels. Well, in some sense, yes. All the people of God are his wonderful treasure, as we're going to see tonight. But in another sense, he is covered with their sin. The Lord has taken off the filthy rags of, of the high priest. But he's now wearing them. And he's being treated accordingly by God. Then it comes to an end. And the atonement is completed. And the relationship of father to son is restored. And he speaks to his father once again. And he commits himself into his father's hands. You know, the, the other word that's missing right in this point, right between Ali, Eli, Lama, Sabachthani, and, and into your hands I commit my spirit, is this word in John 19.30. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave of his spirit. Right before this, he says, Tetelestai. There's one Greek verb you really need to know. It means it's finished. You Greek scholars out there know that it's in the perfect tense. Tetelestai. It is finished. It's not happening now. It's not on its way to being finished. It is finished, completed. There's nothing more to be added to it. It's done. And that's why you could say, Father. That's why that veil of the temple was at that moment torn. It wasn't halfway It wasn't that there were holes poked into it and we hope that there's some more further work. It is completely torn in two. And Jesus is back to calling God his Father. And he commits himself into the Father's hands. He's quoting really from Psalm 31 verse 4. Pull me out of the net which they have secretly laid for me, for you are my strength. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me. Lord God of truth. It's a blessed word. It's even itself from Scripture. Christ died with the words of Scripture on his lips, as indeed have many of his saints since then. And having said this, these words which are music to our ears, because we're waiting to see how this is going to end. And can you imagine if that were the last word he had ever said was, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, and we never knew anything more than that. Darkness would be upon us, for sure. And having said this, he breathed his last. Having said this wonderful word, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The hands that had been darkening the sun, the hand that had torn the temple, he now commits Reveal the temple, he commits his soul into his hands. And saying this, he breathed his last because this is his last act. He's not being acted upon, he is actually doing this. He is actively breathing out his last, his soul. He exhales his soul. Because we know from John chapter 10 I lay down my life that I might take it up again. I lay it down. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of myself because I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it up again. And so Jesus Christ, so he might have appeared to have been merely passive in all these things, yet 
he was active, and he laid down his life. And then when he completed the work, he committed his soul to the Father. Friends, this is the meaning of the death of Christ. It's about the judgment that was poured out upon Christ in order that we might find mercy, in order that we might come into the blessed, benevolent presence of the living God, and that he laid down his life in atoning sacrifice. Now it's obvious that these things tend to our salvation, but before we even say a word about that, I want you to understand that we need to worship when we see these things. The whole point of these things, the whole point of your existence is that you might worship the living God. And friends, there's nothing more that he could show you. I don't have anything in the back room. I don't have any wonderful new tricks to show you. I have Christ. And this is it. This is the most stupendous moment. Now, we're going to speak of the, the, of the resurrection soon enough. And that's an even more wonderful thing in some ways. But all this is all the crossroads. Everything in this whole Bible, it all comes here or comes from there. This is it. And if you can't worship Christ and see this, if you can't worship Him and knowing what He endured on your behalf, there's no element... You think of the worst sinner that you can imagine. Most people pick Hitler. You could also pick Judas. Pick who you want. Who is right now, already in, in, at least in soul, not yet in body, because that happens at the final judgment. Enduring hell. Or what they're going to be when they have their body. Which the flames of hell and the darkness and all the rest of these things reach them. You understand that there is nothing that is being poured out upon them that was not poured out upon the Lord Jesus Christ. He suffered it all. That cup, the cup of God's wrath, which he so often portrays, you can imagine some horrible poison, vile poison, that would cause death and suffering along the way. Lord Jesus Christ didn't just sip it or taste it or sample it. He drank it down in his entirety. No aspect of the wrath of God, that kind of judgment that he did not experience, of forsakenness, as well as the darkness, as well as the death. Friends, it was for your salvation. Does that not bring you to love him, to be thankful for him, and particularly to worship such a one? The Son of God brought to this that you might live. I have nothing more to give than Christ crucified. And I have no one else to preach but Christ crucified. There is no other gospel that I can give than this gospel. And I want you to know that the, 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 any basis that we ever have of there being a good word for you comes from the good word that came from the cross. And the signs externally that we see that this judgment was finished. Do you understand that if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you can die with those very same words on your lips? That the very same assurance of the Lord Jesus Christ, that his, that there was no more wrath to pay. He knew there was no more wrath because he paid it all. He drank the last drop. He died in right fellowship with his father. 
And friends, that's us. This is for our assurance. It's done. That the veil of the temple is gone. The temple is gone. And there's nothing keeping us outside of that mercy seat. And so it was that Stephen, as he lay dying, in Acts 7.59, Stephen, as he was being stoned, called out on God and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Lord, this is it. Friends, this is the gospel. Into your hands I commit my spirit. You know that's what it is. We, we need to restate the gospel sometimes. I often say, believe the Lord, in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. It's very true. But you know that's the gospel word? Into your hands I commit my spirit because otherwise it's in our hands. And we are walking around trying to make something of our spirit. Trying to make our spirit, our soul acceptable to the living God. And we can't do it. We fail. And the message that is preached to you this morning is that there is a way opened. Through the, the shed blood of Christ. And the door is Christ himself now. There's no veil. There's no, we don't hear anything by the way of a door in the veil. Christ is the door. And you come through that door through faith. And all you have to say is, into your hands I commit my spirit. And you commit your spirit to him and you're saved. Because he's done it all. What a travesty then. It's one thing when there's a veil there. It's one thing when there's darkness over the whole earth. But when Christ died having completed the work of atonement, why should anyone thereafter Decide to reject such a salvation. Because that is your decision. Before you stands life or death, and I urge you to choose life. The way is open. Christ has died and is risen. Believe and you'll be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know not what to say to these things. There are too much. And Lord, we are thankful that your people will have all of eternity to meditate upon these things and to know their fuller meaning. But Lord, what you have given to us in these three verses is more than enough. Truly, Lord, we see the darkness, picture of your wrath and judgment come upon the earth and upon one particular man who was wearing upon himself the imputed sins of all of your people. But then there was this veil which you had put in place, in fact, to keep people out of the mercy seat, the place of your, the meeting place where we had fellowship. But Lord, this way is now open. You have torn this veil, and how we pray that all would enter, and all who hear this word of God, yes, they would come pouring into the place of mercy. We are thankful that the atonement was finished. And Christ no longer spoke to God, which he was experiencing only alienation and wrath and exclusion. Rather, his own loving Father. And Lord, my prayer is that each and every one of us might be able to die with this truth in our hearts. Father, into your hands we commit our spirits. We pray this in Christ's name.
Amen.